The reason why I got so good at global talent was out of desperation because I didn't have the resource. I made $48,000 a year leaving the government. So that was my job for most of my professional career. And so I had to be crafty because I tell people all the time, if I paid $125,000 a year in California for an executive assistant, I wouldn't need to write one thing down. But I'm gonna pay $12,000 a year, use global talent, and I need to write things down. And so I never had the luxury of skilled employees because I just, I didn't. So I had to evolve a mindset and a methodology because I didn't have 125 Gs, but I needed an assistant. Welcome to the Small Business Mentor Podcast, where we shine a light on the black holes of business growth with your host, Alan Pence. In each episode, we explore the leaps and bounds entrepreneurs make as they push their businesses beyond the 1 million mark into the realm of professional sustainable growth. Stay with us as we navigate the journey from brute force to finesse. Welcome to the Small Business Mentor. Today we got John Matzner with us. So, John, give us the John Matzner story. How did you get here? How much time you got? I got a lot. I have a self-managing company now, John, so I can I can sit around here forever and be on X and like type stuff on X. There you go. That's the promise. You just you just nailed the hook. So went to school in Philly, went to Penn, but was international relations. He was, uh, was in high school on 9-11, which was kind of a formative thing for me growing up, going to high school in Jersey, 9-11 happened. And I was like, all right, I got to do something. And then went to Penn. So I was just kind of like tracked, like the rock war was going on. It was just like, like got to do something. I always thought I was going to go into the military, ended up going into the kind of wider national security world, not military. And then spent better part of a decade kind of living overseas North Africa and the Middle East. Um, so did that and then just kind of didn't want to spend a career in the government as much. I believe in the mission, believe in the cause. I tell my son to do it, but I just didn't want to spend a career working my way up the government in two-year increments or whatever it was. And so got out. I was living in Dubai at the time, decided I wanted to start buying companies randomly. So bought a couple, some of them easier or harder than others, and kind of moved back. I'd met my wife around then. And so I was raising foreign direct investment was kind of my first thing out of getting out of the government. And then I met the people I was raising money for. And I was like, I need to operate companies. I should not be raising money for these people's companies. So then just started buying them. And so did that and had a lot of fun, but gained an appreciation for easier versus harder business models, let's say. And over the course of that, because of my experience overseas, every single business I ever did, I didn't just use American talent every single business. Like why in God's name would I, I just always blended it. From day one, I didn't see any distinction because I was living overseas building companies. I was like, why would I hire someone? In? And so when I moved back to the States, I kind of kept that going. And even when I was doing like a local business, I was just like, yeah, why would I have my phones answered in Orange County, California? Just use AirCall, get a guy in Belize. And so I always, I was always blending local and global, and then have kind of parlayed that into a lot of different productized services, whatever, sold one of my local companies, th that kind of thing. So that's a long answer to a short question. All right. So you've been active on Twitter, causing, you know, like kicking up some dust about searchers getting naively into these deals where they're, you know, they're levering up with SBA debt 90%. And so you, you kind of feel like they're getting sold a bill of goods. So expand on that. 
I try to be, to use a $5 word, epistemologically humble, meaning I don't know everything. I, that's a five, that's a pen word. I try to be humble and say, I don't know everything. And to me, especially for people in their first experience in the private sector, you're going to learn things. You're going to decide that this isn't a right fit. You're going to be humble. And when you start something, you have the ability after four weeks to go, wow, government contracting is terrible. I really want to do staffing for the government. And no harm, no foul. You spent a little time. Maybe you got a little bit of money in it, but no harm, no foul. But when you go from white collar middle America to owning a roofing company, and in 30 days, you realize like, what have I done? And you have two kids at home that you need to provide for when you realize, well, I told him to do this and I told him to send me his KPIs and he said, I quit. And so all I ask people to do is use debt as an accelerant, not as a way to ante up at the table, which is go work at a roofing company, be a GM for two weeks, spend two weeks inside one roofing company, and then lever yourself to the gills, whatever. But all of these people, I, I call them um, wedding DJs. They're not talking about how hard it is to be married. They're talking about getting everybody on the dance floor. And it's like, when that music stops, they made their DJ fees. And so just like... Don't listen to the wedding DJs. Listen to the guys who've been married for 20 years like you, guys who are actually doing it and saying, this is wonderful. Being married's awesome, but it's not easy. I was 100% on the like, all right, so the returns speak for themselves, right? I mean, if you do it right, you make a shitload of money. You know, and I look at the math and I'm like, yeah, totally. But then I realized like, oh yeah, like I didn't buy my company, I started. And I like beat my head against the wall and chewed glass for five years. Just figuring, I, I've worked in my industry even before at a bigger company. And like, I screwed up a lot of stuff. Correct. Now imagine you had $29,000 in debt service every single month from the first day you entered government contracting. Think about the stress. Yeah, exactly. And like those times where like, we put money on like a line of credit because we didn't have good projections and our work started going down. I'm like, man, if I had that debt service on top of that, I want people to know who are wedding DJs and who are happily married people. And when you talk to happily married people, you look at John Wilson or you look at uh, Raphael Quinn, guys who both bought tons of companies and they go, I love buying companies. It's the best. But if you think it's easy, you are high as a kite. And again, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but don't listen to the wedding DJs saying like, it's the fastest one. It's like, come on, get out of here. So you think like the X community is like pushing this a little hard and like kind of over overselling and kind of under telling the story of what can go wrong? I think it's huge survival bias, which is if it's, if someone is just making their debt payments and paying themselves $2,200 a month, working 70 hours a week, they're not on Twitter. They're not on X. They're grinding going, oh shit, I should have stayed at my job at Johnson & Johnson. They're not writing threads. And the, the, the transaction, the wedding DJs and the people who it went really well for, myself included, by the way, it's huge selection bias. Here's my thread on four ways I made less money and my wife's threatening to divorce me. <laughs> me good. I, I would read that. Well, you didn't know shit when you bought these companies, right? Self-admittedly. It's a little bit of the old Mozart quote, which I love which is somebody goes up to Mozart and says, I'm 12 years old, I wanna write a symphony. And he says, you should write something more basic first. He says, you didn't write one. I said, I never asked. I never took a course. I wasn't up my own butt. I just said, of course I'm gonna buy this and I'll figure it out. And I'm not gonna take a freaking course or cue. I didn't know any of that. I was just like, well, I'll figure it out. And I did, but I didn't ask. I just did it. 
But you also learn some lessons, right? Like some business models are not that great. And you didn't want to own that business. It really came down to leverage, which I write about a lot now, which is I think you have to earn the right to have higher leverage. I was talking, I was exchanging tweets with Huber yesterday about this, which is when you're first getting started, you have no leverage. Great. Start a power washing company. And as you get better, you earn the right to build your leverage in the form of capital, labor, whatever. And so then you can own a training company. Then you can own a SaaS that supports power washing. But you have to earn your way up the ladder. But I have no problem starting at the bottom. I like that concept, though, because you're talking about sort of like, it's not really a hold co, but it's like a progression co. I'm going to start basic, and then I'm going to get more complicated and have more capital and all that kind of stuff. Or just be better. You know, we bought this garage upgrade company, bought it, grew it like crazy, sold it. And now I license that concept out to, we have 30 around the country. That's an example of like earning the right to build more leverage. So I went from owning a local working capital intensive small business and I was able to work my way up and now I'm doing, you know, higher leverage stuff. But what do you think about like, okay, so like say I worked in PE, right? I'm like a PE analyst. Like, do you think that gives me a little bit more cred? At least I know, at least I know what working capital is. It's true. I have had people after they've bought companies, ask me some of the most insane questions you've ever heard in your life. You know, like, how do I calculate gross margins? And this is like after they bought the company. I didn't know, but I started my company. But remember, you started in penny annies. You didn't have 48 Gs in debt service for the next 10 years, bending the, the roof over your kid's house. You had to build the plane before you went fast. When you use debt, you get dropped in the cockpit and you're crashing into the side of the mountain unless you learn how to fly in time. Yeah, I would say debt is pulling the future forward, right? And just make sure it's a future you want. Which is a whole different thing. So... I don't know the answer on the the smart PE guys. I think buying bigger can be okay. I would just say you have to humble yourself. I went from being a working in an embassy wearing a custom three-piece suit to loading a dumpster with some minimum wage blue collar guys because that's what the company needed. And so I would say if you're that PE guy, realize that the business will never look easier than on a spreadsheet. And if you're not willing to air quotes plunge the toilet, don't do it because it's not cosmetic, unless you buy really big, which that can work too, like the classic search fund thing. But you got investors at that point, you're probably not doing it with a lot of debt and it's not PG. Correct. And you've got people you can go to for more working capital if you get a little lean and they'll do a little, you know, that works. The, the issue that I've seen is that this methodology of search funds, which works really good, they only buy businesses with 1.5 and above adjusted earnings with recurrent or highly re like now the wedding DJs are pushing people down in the market and they're like, look at search fund returns. And you're like, brother, that is not what you're doing. You're rolling the dice, which is totally different. And actually to your point on the PE thing, read uh, guesswork investing stuff. Right. And he's kind of that guy. Right. And like, I think it's going well for him, but man, it's, it was like a smack in the face. Like he goes from doing models at, in wall street to like running a tree company in Seattle. Him and I have talked fairly extensively. We have a commonality in our in our background, but I don't want to destroy his anonymity, so I won't share it. But what I would say is he has the right attitude, which is he's like, he's in it, man. He's not saying, like he's in it, right? He's working his butt off. And so he's a good person to hold up who's just got a ton of intellectual horsepower who's willing to do what it takes. It's when people say like, oh, I want to like hire an operator. and It's like, how do I short you? That's my question. Yeah, I think, well, and one guy pushed back on you, I saw in that one of your first threads on that, where he was like, oh, so you're telling me I should go get investors, 
go work in some stupid company for a while and then get investors and then I don't get any return. And I was like, well, no, I think just going and working in a place for a couple of months to figure out what it's like is like not that big a deal. Or even start something from zero that's not going to support you. Do it on the weekends for a couple months and then you get a feel for the rhythms of the industry. Then go buy. That's okay too. Like, well, that can't support me. Do it at nights and weekends until you figure out if you even like this, then go search for a commercial landscaping company or whatever. One of the things I was reckoning my, my son's 15, he's all into business. I was like, you should go work for like one of these companies, like permanent equity or the guys up in Portland, Maine, they're, you know, they're buying or, you know, one of these whole and go out and like, see what it's like working in these businesses, right? Then go out and buy your business, right? You know, like that, there's, there's pathways into this where you're not just like, you know, you're going to be working in like a sophisticated company with smart people. The other thing to me too, is a big reason why I don't like the debt and whatever is because it reduces optionality. Meaning I try something and I don't like it and I want to sell it for what I put into it or something like that. When you have debt, there's covenants, there's restrict, whatever. Whereas okay, maybe your first business you buy isn't going to be your home run. No big deal. Sell it to your employees, call a single and move on. Hey, I hate this industry. I didn't realize it before I bought. But when you have debt that's up to your eyeballs, you reduce your ability to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot and do more commercial work because the residential stuff is brain damage. But if you have debt, you've got 38 Gs every month. And if you take one month off, they take your freaking car. You don't have an ability to get smart and change your mind or evolve your thinking. All right. So that brings me to my second. This is one of my pet peeves, not your pet peeves, but hold codes. So do you have a, do you have a take on hold codes? I mean, here, here's mine. There are good practitioners here and we know them on Twitter. You just mentioned one, right? So, um, you know, Chris Hoffman and, you know, John Wilson. And although I think they're the exception actually. So I would put John in a different category because I think he's like this uh, vertical hood co which I actually like, but these horizontal ones. But I, I think somebody wrote about this. I think if it's vertical, it's not a hold cut. Well, I mean, the concept of like, hey, I'm buying different plumbing companies and different geographies and I'm not integrating them. Or I know that I can run a plumbing business model with an HVAC company or something like that. So I get that. All right. So I think there are abnormal returns available in the small business space, right? I mean, Brent Bishore wrote about this a long time ago. And you're getting, you know, 10% profitable business is, is Greg Crabtree is one of my mentors. I says, you know, that's minimum 50% return on invested cap. So the, the returns are there. So I see like, Hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to buy it for four times and I'm getting a 25% return. That's better than what I'm getting in, you know, the markets, although not this year, but I just feel like, okay, so that's true. The reason that's true is because it's inefficient. And I'm like, okay, I get it for a certain period of time. Like, all right, I can build a 50 plus million dollar company doing this. But at some point, I feel like you're going to have to go up the amount, particularly if you have investor money, right? You're going to have to go up on the amount of EBITDA or size of the company. So your returns go down or you're going to have to, you're going to get so inefficient where you're managing across 150 companies that are all tiny, right? And like how much management capital do you have to make sure those are all doing the right thing and blah, blah, blah. And I just like, at some point, I think the returns just go down. Like, I don't get it. Now on the vertical side, I get it, right? I have a playbook I'm running and I'm Constellation. I'm John Wilson. I got a playbook. I can go in like my buddy buys, uh, he's like a retail broker for, um, you know, like dollar stores and stuff. 
So you can go in and buy a shopping mall that's, or like a strip mall that's like down on its luck. He knows he can fix it up and he can rent it to these tenants. So he can immediately flip the cap rate. So that guy knows what he's doing and he can go in and do that. But in my mind, the hold co thing, you're every time you're, you're going in and you don't know anything. I have many comments on this. So that's not a rant. I think it's, I think the first thing I think psychologically to try to understand it, I think is people don't want to go to a cocktail party after going to Yale and say, I own a gardening company. So instead they want to be able to say, oh no, no, I'm building a hold, holding company and it's got this big, people have trouble saying, oh, all I'm doing is running a tree trimming company. Wait, you went to Yale and you run a, a tree trimming company? So I think some of it on the low end is kind of psychological security to go from prestigious job at Johnson and Johnson to tree trimming. They have to wrap it in bullshit like a lot of these influencers do. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say, I think you have to start, you have to start, um, better CEO, John Seifer does this a lot. I think you have to start with what is your goal? And it's like, well, what's your goal? I want to make a ton of money. That's easier with one really good business than, so what's your goal? I want to be a full-time capital allocator. Okay. But when you're down at this part of the market, that's not what you're doing. You're solving operational problems. You have to start with what the goal is. And there is theoretically like I could do a holding company that buys disparate companies and uses offshore to juice them. I could do that. All right. You're, but you're running a playbook that makes sense across all, the, all right. that I get. I'm running a playbook. I'm running the strip mall playbook. But just going in and saying, I'm going to buy a company and I don't do anything different than anybody else. It's like. Well, the, one, the only time I've actually seen new entrants, and if they don't know what their differentiation is, this is always what it is, which is they're willing to use personally guaranteed debt to buy things that nobody else will. That's their differentiation strategy and the whole, like all freaking gamble and nobody else will. That's literally their only, like, what do you do differently than Alan? Well, you're less experienced. You don't know the industry. All the competitors pass. What's the one differentiation that you have? I'm willing to take on full recourse debt to make this deal pencil. Ah, best of luck with that, brother. Yeah. But I mean, all right. So, so say you've got, and this is the other thing I don't get. All right. So say you got six kinds of companies, 10 kinds of companies. They're all producing cash flow. You're like, all right, I want to reinvest because I think they're good returns here. Well, doesn't it make sense to say like, well, let's look at the 10, figure out which ones produce the most with the least amount of effort. And like, now we know these businesses, we know how to buy them. Let's go buy more of those. Or find other ways to use that capital, taking advantage of your, like for GovCon for you, maybe there's not a good use of capital and acquisitions, but it's like, I'm gonna spin out a live training facility. It's something I know. I have a, I have a leverage point, right, where I can market that more easily. Correct. You already have the customers, or you already have the staff. But if you just like YOLO and you buy a dumpster company, it's like, why the fuck are you starting from zero again, dude? Exactly. That's what it is. It's starting from zero, and it's like I don't understand why investors would give people money for that at a certain point. The way that they give people money for it, though, is and which is okay. Like I imagine Chenmark's like this, where they say, what's their value proposition? They say, we can take operationally intensive companies and train a junior Ivy League MBA to run them and babysit them indefinitely. That's our secret sauce is we take green MBAs and we take operationally intensive businesses and we have a support structure. At least I understand that. Like, I feel like when Brent Bichar started this uh, back in the day with Adventures, I don't know if you know him. I know him remotely because of my favorite quote of all time, which is small businesses are continual disasters that occasionally make money. I'm like, 
he was the first guy I read, like where I was like, oh, this is really about some, he and Greg Crabtree. So anyway, he's a genius. I love the guy. And he started talking about the returns that were available in the market. So I get it. Like at that point, there was no way to access these returns for a uh, capital, you know, like for an investor. But now there's like a whole industry being created around this, right? We have multiple companies like Permanent Equity and Genmark, and then you got Majority Search. And there's a couple of those coming out. So like now it feels to me like that part of the market where you're getting the MBA and doing that thing, it's going to get efficient pretty quickly with a lot of money flowing in. It is. Go on biz buy sell right now and tell me if you can find one B2B company with recurrent or highly recurrent revenue with a retiring owner that does over a million dollars in earnings. Guess how many you're going to find? The market is becoming more efficient, undoubtedly. So you have to be willing. And it's the reason why, again, I developed a lot of my skill sets was that same thing, which is you have to answer the, why am I so lucky question? And for me, I can look at the same deal as Brent Bishore and say, I can drive incredible returns here because I know how to use offshore better than he does. And again, I have my lane. I don't know if that's whatever, but my point would be is that at least I have a narrative for why I can do it and why I should buy this and he shouldn't. But a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. And I think going back to, you know, our last kind of conversations about the searches, like I just did a deal with some guys where we bought a metal fab facility and they took on SBA debt and it's small, you know, and like, okay, this is a part. You put in 19%? I put in 10 for their down payment. Okay. Just less than 20 is the key. Cause then you don't go on the guarantee. And we bought the building and everything. So it was a good deal. But the reason they're like two weeks in and it's, you know, it's tough and I like the market right? Because of reindustrialization. And, and like, I think metal fab is like, people don't really like it. It's project-based work, but there's good margins there. And, and the owners are all crusty old guys, you know, or like your plumber, but, um, these guys had operated a small business that had a production line. They're in it. They've employed that kind of labor before they know how to sell. They had run it at higher guns, but I was like, oh, this is what you guys should do. I'm okay with that. That doesn't bother me at all. It's just the wedding DJs telling people to like, that's just my only issue is the wedding DJs. I don't have an issue with acquisition. Hold cause I'm going to have, I'm going to have a couple of these guys on to tell me why I'm an idiot. All right. So tell me about output thinking. You're all into this book. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. So John, um, has become a friend via Twitter. The reason why I like John is I'm like a golden retriever who is very glib right? About some of these concepts. And John is like the guy who like sits in the back and then just comes in and he's like, here's a really simple way to say that, right? That's what John is to me. And I think simple is harder than complex. And the reason why I like reading and, and appreciating and building a relationship, he's become a friend with John is because he's seen it 10,000 times. And he's like, John, systems are three things, input, transformation, output. And I'm like, John would have said that. Well, it's, a, it's complicated. There's a, and John, trigger, input, transformation, output. And so- I just like talking to John. I just like his methodology. And he's doing something that I started to do that didn't work, which is when I first got on Twitter, all I was talking about was systems and nobody paid attention because systems are a feature, not a benefit. The minute I started talking about offshore, people started paying attention, but all I really do is system stuff. <laughs> like using lower cost global labor is a byproduct of having good systems. And so when I start, here's three ways to build a good system, people fall asleep. But if I say, here's three ways to use people who are 25% of the cost of Americans, very different. What's the big idea in output thinking? I mean, you think about outputs? It's a good question. It's really, he's books in three parts, outputs, systems, and I did a bunch of interviews with him too. 
and buckets. Outputs are when you hire people and build your team, you are hiring them to produce an output. You're not hiring them to do a job. You're not hiring to put them in your org chart. You're saying your job is to have, your output is 85% done bidding proposals. Your output is a good relationship with this key customer. Your output is up-to-date balance sheet. And thinking in outputs allows you to scale. It allows you to systematize. It allows you to use technology well. Systems are how you... So the great analogy, I use my own analogies. The one that he uses a lot is grandma knows how to make Thanksgiving dinner without a recipe. She just knows how to do it. But the minute you have tried to somebody else to make that Thanksgiving meal, if they don't have a recipe, they're not going to make it. And so a lot of businesses are run like grandma. Oh, I just know when it's done. And when you try to build a business, not just a job, you have to think in outputs, which is a 365 degree internal temperature of the turkey, not when grandma thinks it's done. So it's like, if I have a job description, I'm not going to put down, here are the roles. I'm going to say, here are the eight outputs that you're responsible for that the business uses or I consume or something like that. It's one way to use it. Like, here's what I'm buying when I hire you. I'm buying a good relationship with this vendor. I'm buying a weekly email that you send me that includes these three things. And I'm buying whatever. That's, it's a cool way to think about it. I'm buying an M&A pipeline. Obviously, um, blends into your business as well, right? Like, cause hiring offshore, that's probably one of the key things, right? Is thinking through the exact output you're getting from this labor. So I think that what it is, is that one of your jobs as a business owner, generally speaking, unless you don't want this. But generally speaking, it's to drive the production of your product down the labor ladder. That's one of the ways. So it's not hard to make good French fries with Gordon Ramsay, but you can't scale that. So your job is to try to create a business that can have somebody off the street who's stoned make French fries. That is a more valuable organization than a Gordon Ramsay organization. And so the way it ties into offshore is in order to take advantage of offshore in a predictable, scalable, high-quality way, you have to have good systems. You can't just say, hey, Betty, follow Alan around and then just do what he tells you to do because they're on the other side of the world. So I have to go, Alan, what exactly do you want Betty to do? Okay. How do you know she did a good job? Okay. You just said judgment. What do you mean by judgment? Now, once you've totally externalized it, now I can flick it to Betty and Betty does a great job. So global talent really... Um, creates a firm focus on systemization. I love that because like being in a professional services business like I am, it's too easy to rely on the intelligence of the people, right? So they can kind of just get it. You know, in a professional service, a lot of time it's just like, you're getting trained by a more senior person by osmosis, just observing. And so that resists, you know, then people don't document it and don't break it apart. And it's sort of like, uh, there's a really good book by this guy, Justin Roth Marsh on, um, sales called the machine. And, um, that's sort of what he was saying. It's like sales is this like sort of bespoke, you're either good at it or you're not. I just, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think like in my company, we over rely on the native intelligence of the people that get it. So for me, Alan, the reason why I got so good at global talent was out of desperation because I didn't have the resource. You know, I made $48,000 a year leaving the government. So that was my job for most of my professional career. And so I had to be crafty because I tell people all the time, if I paid $125,000 a year in California for an executive assistant, I wouldn't need to write one thing down, but I'm going to pay $12,000 a year, use global talent, and I need to write things down. And so I never had the luxury of skilled employees because I just, I didn't. So I had to evolve a mindset and a methodology because I didn't have 125 Gs, but I needed an assistant. 
It's totally true. And I think, you know, one of the things I've been tweeting about recently is like this like labor shortage isn't going away. So like Greg Crabtree, I mentioned, he has this hundred company model where he tracks a hundred companies of their clients across all industries, all small, you know, over the United States and over like 10 years. And he shows like in 2019, we basically ran out of labor. Unemployment hit below four in 2019. Now we had this like dislocation in 2020. So it went, but it came right back. Right. And it's still going down 3.7% now. We're not making new people. It takes 30 years to make a 30 year old. Right. So I think we're stuck, you know, maybe we'll have little blips when we have recession. The only way to do it by the, the only way to do it is immigration. That's a whole nother topic is immigration. If you look at all these population, you know, Japan is the average age, you know, there'll be more people over the age of 70 in China than there will be Americans in the next 15 years because of one child. But the reality is you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, we get them, but they don't go somewhere else. So there's just a global labor shortage. And it goes to one of my things. Did you, have you ever trained for any like marathons or running or anything like that? I used to do triathlons back in the day. One of the things that they yell at you about is garbage miles, which is, let's say I'm trying to train for an eight minute mile on my triathlon. You should either do long, slow distance at 12 minutes or sprints at six minute pace, but you don't want to be in the middle. And what I think is going to happen to our, uh, it's, it's, they call them garbage miles, basically barbell. And one of my theories that I've been working on these days that I think makes sense is that people with their staff get stuck in the garbage middle, which is either you should pay for somebody who's 180 Gs a year, or you should go global. But that $82,000 a year person, they should either be a director and be driving strategy and or go global. But that $89,000 a year, like junior assistant manager who doesn't really do much and they're not really proactive, like either upgrade them or down, not, I, global talent isn't a downgrade, but I just mean like either go high or go low. Don't do these garbage middle. And so when I look at organizations, what's going to happen is the HVAC techs are going to make more and the marketing coordinators who don't really do much are going to make less and the labor pool is going to get fixed. I mean, I 100%, so I've like tweeted out some of this stuff where I'm like, okay, an A player is worth probably 10 times what a B player. Depends on the industry, but yeah, certainly in uh, knowledge work. In my, in my industry, right? So like, but you don't pay them 10 times, you pay them 25%. So get rid of all the B players and outsource any offshore, any of that you can, and then just use the money to get all A players. And when you're paying this much for labor and it's going up every year, you just cannot afford to have mid-tier talent sitting around getting paid 100K, the garbage middle. It's the garbage middle. I like read an article about this. It was about teachers in South Korea. Teaching in South Korea, because of the way their system's set up, like the top 30 tutors in South Korea make millions of dollars a year because a good teacher is so much more valuable than just like somebody punching the clock. They've managed to like, they've like stratified their population. And I think companies need to be built like that. You know, the person answering your phone cannot make $58,000 a year. They can't if they're just answering the phone. Now, if they do other stuff, if we promote, great. But if that's all they're doing, you need to go global, go to Belize where they speak English as a native language, and then take all that money and give it to the person who is actually wrenching on the water heater. And if you don't do that, someone is going to listen to someone like you. John Wilson's going to go listen to you, and he's going to start paying his tax 25% more than market. And you're not, you're going to be like, how do I do this? Right. I'm so glad that you picked up on that. I've mentioned that. And I'm like, I don't think people realize how not, I don't want to say profound, but just how important what I just said was <laughs> it's like, what I mean though, is that if you can pay 20% more for labor for auto mechanics without raising your price to customers, 
you can put companies out of business in the war for talent. And nobody knows how you're doing it. You're like, the way we do it is by changing the way our labor pool is made up. And now in the war for talent, I pay 20% above market and they can't figure out why. And I'm still at the same price I was before. And by the way, I'm making great profitability. And so it's like this secret. I'm like, overnight, you can develop a competitive advantage in an industry if you learn to use global talent and AI better. No doubt. Yeah. And I also feel like, yeah, and with the automation too, yeah. So I have a buddy who does title insurance. He's done this in the Philippines and he's way more profitable because he's got 60 people in the Philippines. And I noticed that the longer he's had it, the longer he's been involved there, just like it starts compounding. No one can like walk in and take that mode away right away. They're going to have to work and pay. Like someone can't just go and be like, all right, now I'm offshore and I'm equal to you. It's a muscle. And I write, I own the domain. I haven't done anything with it, but, and I do it. It's one of my companies, but I call it the overseas operating system. It's a, it's a way to do business that uses global talent, but it's not limited to just hiring somebody for six bucks an hour. It's a way you do end of day reports. It's the type of technology you use. It's the way that you give them a feeling of belonging rather than just being up at four in the morning by themselves in a dark off. Like all of that stuff is how you make it work. It's not just like I go on Upwork and get somebody for five bucks. So the key is someone needs to come work with you, do it, and then get you kicked off of Twitter, right? So you can't tell anybody else about it. Well, somebody needs to, you know, write me a huge blank check and say, please just come build all this for me and I'll give you economics. I'm going to go with my favorite tweet of the week. So I don't know if you know this guy, Chris Corner, I think his name is, MHP guy out in Salt Lake. Yeah, he's a, he's one of the whole code guys, but I love my whole code brothers. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to bad mouth them completely, but he wrote this tweet. He's like got a um, home service brand, brands out there on Salt Lake. And he said, if I went to do it again, there's no way I would like do what I did. He'd say, I go figure out the five of the high ticket items that people do that are sort of. Oh, wait, is this an uh, MHP guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you read this? He, we've become Twitter buddies. He's a hoss. He is a no joke. Yeah, he's a hoss. He is amazing. Okay. So he said, I'd pick like fencing, irrigation, hardscaping, flooring, foundation repair, right? Then he's going through, just for the audience, we'll, we'll give him a quick background. So then he would say, I would go through and scrape everybody in the area. I wanted to, know, you know, my comp competition in the area for those services, put it in a CSV and I'd have uh, somebody offshore call them to see how long it would take them to get a quote. So some of them aren't going to answer the phone. Some of them are going to take forever to get the quote, right? So you're kind of like, and then you kind of look at the population figures of the place. And like he was saying, like Nashville, there's like one tree trimmer for every 5,000 people, but it's 10,000 in, in Houston. So you focus on Houston, call your competition. I did something similar with uh, cost of Google PPC traffic. When I was going to buy companies, I was looking at the cost per click as a proxy for competition. Exactly. So then he said, go into like Nextdoor or whatever those, you know, home, like Angie's List or Angie, what's called, and go into those, see who's active, see who has reviews, and basically just do this huge data analysis of who sucks in the market, where the holes are, where there are not enough good competitors. And then you can actually go just hire those companies. You just get a better answering system. You go into the places where people aren't active, like on Angie, do some content, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, you can go to like the Home Depot or wherever all the subs hang out. There's always a place, right? And you don't even have to build a company. You just have like a marketing machine that refers the jobs out. You know what would be funny about that, Alan? So you know Trends, uh, Sam Parr's 
company where he was talking about that, where they were doing like, so basically you could do a blue collar version of that where your company does all this analysis and people pay you like some subscription to have access to your like proprietary local research. That is good, man. Like the whole search community would go crazy. Hey, we've got a hot one. It's a Midwest state. It's a high margin industry with a 50% delta between comps and other markets. And this, and then when they subscribe, you're like, Salt Lake City needs a tree trimmer. Oh man, dude, I'm in. Whoever wants to do that, I have some money. I will help fund that. That is brilliant. And it's like a data product. You could offer shared services to those guys, like getting started and all that crap. Yeah, you could, that'd be a fun business. That was my tweet of the week, man. I was like, this guy, my 15 year old son, I mentioned he's talking to somebody about doing like an FBA business. I was like, don't do that, man. That is just awful. That's awful. So I sent him this. I was like, go do this. You don't even have to do the actual work. You can just hire people to do it. If all people do is read Chris's stuff and then read St. Louis Chris. And just like, I take that over like a lot of formal education. I have another tweet by him, actually, so I do know who he is. So he had my second favorite tweet. Sorry, Chris, you got second. I feel like one of my tweets should be up here, to be honest, if I'm your guest. Like, I feel like you should fix this in the format. You got to do a little flattery. I will. No, you're, you're next. You're the third best. But I'm putting you in big company here. These guys got a lot of followers, lots of businesses, right? All right, so his whole thing was he's got a setup with his bank now he's a big company, so this is big money. He has it so like any cat, if they ever need funds in the checking account, it automatically hits a line of credit, takes the funds. And then when cash comes in, if there's a balance on the line of credit, it auto sweeps to, the, to pay off the balance. Then he can take all the cash that he's supposed to have in the business and invest it. I mean, you can put it in, you know, 5.5%, you know, treasuries or whatever you want or invest it in the market or blah, blah, blah. But he's picking up like 200K a year just on that. And I was like, I can't even get a freaking sweep account with my bank right now. And so I sent him the tweet. I was like, it's being done. And I'm going to another bank unless you get this set up for me. So we'll see what happens. He's also doing $100 million a year. So they answer his phone calls. I'm not doing quite that, but I think I got a little pull. So let's see if that happens. You got some revenue. You can shop a bit. I'm going to shop. I did. I went out to like three banks already. I, I posted in all my groups like, hey, this is what's being done. Does anyone have anybody to do this? Are you a, a YPO guy or an EO guy or anything like that? I am. I'm YPO and EO. I feel like those types would probably have a banker who could do that. Like one of those, like you put that out to your little uh, YPO crew or whatever. Yeah. So we're working on it, but thank you, Chris, for the idea. I think that was brilliant. That was my second favorite. All right. Then my, my John Matzner quote of the week, wait, I had it here. Where is it? Is the John Matzner math. I love it. So. What was it? It was like the baseball player got paid 700 million or something. So I'm like a, I'm a libertarian. I'm a small government guy. And anytime somebody gets paid a lot of money, somebody always writes like, you know, I'm a firefighter and I only made this and they have no sense of supply and demand. Right. So I just combined messing with all these, like whatever people who don't understand how the market works with a news headline and just fucked up the math because everybody always gets pissed if you mess up math on Twitter. And so, you know, it just, uh, it seemed appropriate for me. All right. So you said Dodgers are spending 700 million on Otani. There are about 3 million teachers in the U S they could have given each teacher $1 million and still had le money left over for Otani. I feel like a $1 million check would be life-changing for most teachers yet. They're spending it on Otani. I love that. Did anyone get pissed? 
Yeah, look at the comment. I feel like most people got the joke, but. Yeah, but there was a few who didn't, and they were just like, actually, your math's wrong, dude. I know, uh, yeah, here's Cole Simpson. I know you know you're wrong, and it still bothers me. And he said, do you not care about teachers? What's good about it, man, is that my business isn't Twitter, and so I can just do whatever I want. I don't care. And so. I love that. That's all right. I'll put that as one and a half best tweet. Please. Thank you. Look, I'm not saying it should be number two, but you know, sweeping accounts. Sweeping accounts. 200K a year for just sweeping accounts. Come on. I love it. That's a business in and of itself. I could sell that for uh, four times EBITDA. It is setting that up for people. And that's, and it's truly a remote manage itself business, right? I could put that on biz by sell and have it sold by the end of the week. But you like my, my local research thing. I love that, dude. I want somebody to do that. I mean, I think it's so easy to do too. And it's so clearly like. The only issue I would see with it though, is I had this happen with a old friend pitch me on um, using AI tools for bankruptcy listings. And he was selling the data to family offices using like LLMs and putting everything in Pacer. It's like the issue with it is the same with this, which is you'd have to figure out because if you disperse it to 50 different people to say tree trimming in Salt Lake City, it becomes less valuable. You'd have to do like an auction. You say like, here's the details. You'd have to blur out some of the information. And then you'd say, because you, if you give that same piece of information, it diminishes with every single person you give it to. Uh, you like auctions, don't you? I saw you over the weekend auctioning off uh, offshore talent. It's because I'm a libertarian because I like price discovery by the market, not by what I think it should be paid. So I'm like, what's it worth to you? I'm one of the people who thinks you should charge $20 when it's hot for bottled water. I'm like, that's my thing. I love floating prices. What's it worth to you? You auctioned off how many people over the weekend? I've done like a couple so far. It's, it's only when I have, I don't like to say auction, by the way. It's a little weird. My finder's fee. I've done maybe three or four. You're promoting Global Town. Yes. How many people have I connected? I've done like three or four, but it's only when I have them. It's my byproducts because I hire so many people globally all the time. A position that I was hiring for in my company or whatever, it's closed, but I'm like, I've got someone great. And so it's not like I'm going to do one every day. It's literally whenever I have one that I don't need. And I'm like, we already interviewed her. I've already incurred all the costs. Who else wants her? It's really cool. I've got a bunch of um, people via text message, a bunch of business owners, and I release it to them first via text 24 hours before I go on Twitter. Wow. Okay. See, you, this is your model. This is a model for the, uh, the home service holes in the home service market. You tech, you have a, you have like the searchers and then you say, all right, I'm going to let you know where there's a big hole in the market that has these characteristics. Who wants this report? Here's what's in the report. I blurred out the information. How much would you pay me for this report? And if somebody's like, oh my God, it's Salt Lake city. I'm from Salt Lake city. I'd pay you 20 grand for that report. Or they're like, ah, you know, I'll bid a thousand on everyone, but the market establishes the price. I'll keep flipping people as I get them. It's it's great for me. It's me monetizing a byproduct of my real businesses. All right. One last topic before we uh, end. All right. Let's talk about Constant Raise Dan and the X account, the anonymous RE. So this is our brothers over at the, and sisters over at real estate Twitter. But did you see this whole thing where like someone outed, I think Molson outed uh, Constant Raise Dan as, and it was some guy or some company, right? That was, I guess they had gotten caught like kind of using other people's tweets and then retweeting them. They created this whole character. It was supposedly like some kind of real estate PE kind of guy. And they were trying to build a whole thing out of it. So what's your, what's your take on the explosion on X? I think it's good in that normative policing of a community is very powerful. Basically, 
a community policing its own is actually good in a company where like there's theoretically there's formal mechanisms, but if your team came to you and said, you don't know this, but this is a bad actor, it's actually a system. It's, it's spontaneous organization. Like it's, I like it. It's the community saying this person's a bullshitter and it's actually a sign of a healthy community. It's like, it's like killing off cancer cells. And so I have no issues with that. And then if he would have been legit, he would have hopped on a call with somebody and said, and the community, it's, you know, spontaneously organizes. And so I have no problem with it at all. There will always be invaders who take advantage of a high trust community to whatever. And then the community will chew them up and go, is this person full of shit or not? And then they'll either say yes or no. And it's a war for, you know, it's a, a battle for the truth, which is imperfect. I totally agree. So like one, I've done some LP investments on real estate with people on real estate Twitter. And one of the things I like, I mean, I did other due diligence and stuff like that, but one of the things I like was like, Hey, if these people are full shit or they totally screw me, like their reputation's at stake on Twitter. And I would come after them on Twitter if they did something, you know, that I thought was underhanded. And so like, I was a little like, people were like, oh, you shouldn't dox somebody and we shouldn't, you know, they'd be like, oh, I know there's somebody fundraising who's all their current deals have fallen apart. I'm like, well, why aren't you telling us who it is? Like, that's the whole point of this community is to like, I have some level of trust in the people because they're getting policed, like, like you said. That's why I like being in my true name, like my real name, which is with the way that I've tried to build my own little itty, itty bitty voice is that there's no disparity between my public and private. I mean, obviously I don't talk about like where I live and crap like that, but I just mean, if somebody's like, oh, I, I gave some money to John and we didn't make money, I'd be like, yeah, dude, I lose money all the time. Like, it's not like, oh, you were claiming that. I'm like, no, nah, dude, uh, I did a deal with Alan. We thought we were gonna be able to X, it didn't happen. And people were like, thanks for telling the truth, man. It's, if you're congruent, there's no risk. Hey, yeah, I'm a GP. I sometimes lose people's money. We thought that interest rates were going to come down. It didn't work. We're hoping to make everybody whole. No, there's no issue. It's only if you have this big disparity, like some particular influencers that I'm not very fond of, where they're completely full of shit. That's where it becomes an issue, which is I did this and it's like, no, you didn't. Dude, I've had two things, two or three things off Twitter that I've mentioned and people have started businesses. The first was um, Jumbo Mail which is direct mail that's, cause I had an old business partner who did this where he ran an SEO company back in the day. He would mail business owners in a bulky package, a magnifying glass, and he would write a note that said, hey, Alan needed this to find you on Google. Let me know if you need help. And he would get like 95% response rates cause they just call him to laugh, right? And so jumbo mail is sending bulky packages to business owners, which always get opened. So I mentioned that story. And then the second one, I don't think this is a real business, but a guy built a site about it which was anonymous certification for gurus, where I'd say I own 20 businesses. You don't want to publicize that because you don't want to get sued or whatever. Fine. You hire me for $99 a month. I'll come in and look at your actual numbers. And then I'll put my reputation saying, I gave them the stamp of approval. He actually does own 20 commercial real estate. And so now it'll help him convert more sales because he's actually been like verified by an accountant or whatever it is. Which is to say, look, I'm not going to talk about all the businesses that I own, but I'll let these guys in. I'll show them everything. And then they'll testify on my behalf as a certification agency for online bullshit. So follow at John Matzner for these pearls of wisdom that become incredible cash flowing businesses for those who are lucky enough to hear them. We'll see. I don't know if they're any good. I'm just nuts. <laughs> all right, John. Good to catch up. We'll talk soon. You've been listening to the Small Business Mentor Podcast. 
brought to you by Alan Pence. For more insights on how to navigate your business through its black holes, visit at APence on X. Don't forget to search for Small Business Mentor in your podcast app to subscribe. Thank you for joining us and here's to your next leap in business growth.